I normally stand over there a lot, so you guys get your turn. Once a year, we come over here, huh? We are wrapping up a series uh, that we've been doing in June, just answering questions that you've submitted. And we've not done it kind of in the normal fashion. This has been wrapped a little bit more. You know, some of the parenting questions were, were wrapped into a particular sermon or whatever. So um, I'm down to, I had like 21 questions that were not yet answered. And, uh, you know, you just do the math. If I spend two minutes on each, we're already at a 40-minute, and they obviously take more than two minutes, so it gets longer. So the way we're doing this is we dealt with a bunch of them in the first service, and if you want to know those, go ahead and listen to that. You get kind of a totally fresh batch, okay? Uh, Whenever we do this, it seems like questions fall into a handful of categories, and, and some of them just get asked again and again. Um, almost every time we do this, I get asked a question, for example, about the Trinity. How does the Trinity work? We answer that in the first service, but you know, I, th- I think the theological questions, sometimes there are things that just fall in the category of mystery, and we will never fully know or understand it in this lifetime, and that's where walking by faith and not by sight comes in. Uh, it seems like almost every time questions come up about relationships, and in particular about forgiveness. The Bible tells me I have to forgive, I don't want to forgive, or I've tried to forgive, should I forgive, how does all that work? And I did cover that in the first. Let me just, let me just give you this you know, brief summary of that. I think sometimes we get a little bit mixed up in the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. That I am to, forgiveness is basically me giving up what I perceive to be my right to hold a grudge, my right to exact punishment. Or in other words, I give up my right to be God. Because somehow we think, remember, God's the ultimate judge. God's the one to take care of things. And we somehow think we have the right to fix it. We don't. We're sinful as well. So we need to step back and let God do what God's going to do. I think I know that I've truly forgiven a person when I'm able to hope the best for them. And in fact, there have been times that I thought I had forgiven somebody and then I found out something good happened for them and I kind of went, ugh. And, and I knew I had not forgiven them. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, you're a jerk. I, boom. So it was exposed. I knew that I wasn't there yet. Um, but let's say you have come to a place of true forgiveness. It is possible you come to forgiveness and you will never be reconciled. There will never be reconciliation. Why? Well, for one thing, reconciliation is you know, a two-way street. So it's possible that I've forgiven and you're not ready to fix it. Well, what do you do with that? Still forgiven, but it's not what it was. Or maybe the person did something that was utterly heinous. You know, a crime against a child. I think the Bible teaches we can forgive anything. As we grow in in Christ-likeness, we can forgive anything. And that's kind of unimaginable, right? But that doesn't mean that everything just goes back to the way it was. There are times that there will still be that lack of reconciliation. In other words, the relationship won't be what it was before, even though I've completely released you of, you know, of, of, my, of the burden of not forgiving. The other question, though, that comes up then is, um, is one thing to forgive someone else. What, what about me forgiving myself? You know, I've done something to someone, and I've asked for their forgiveness, and they've given that forgiveness, and it just sits there like a bad meal. I mean, it, it just won't go away, and it keeps eating at me, and it's, and it's dragging me down. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to believers. What does that mean? 
if God has forgiven me, I need to forgive me too. I need to receive the forgiveness that God has extended to me. But we need to understand this. It may not be that you're not forgiving yourself. It may be another word in here, and that's the word regret. I think that while there are things that I have forgiven myself for, I still regret having done them. That, that, that reality, I wish I hadn't done it. That's regret, right? I wish I hadn't done that. The Apostle Paul, before he's preaching Christ, tortures a bunch of people. I'm sure Paul woke up sometimes in the middle of the night seeing faces and, and thinking, what did I do? And there was that sense of regret with him in him that I don't know that he ever let go of in this life. Because we're not perfect, we will make mistakes, and honestly it says something about the softness of our hearts that we're still willing to come back and say, I shouldn't have done that. But we do have to be careful that it doesn't become a trap of Satan that keeps us from effectively moving on to the next thing. And sometimes we can wallow so much in our regret that we actually lose effectiveness because we're just kind of stuck there. And so we need to be able to come to a place of saying, I am not perfect, I wish I could do it differently. I can't, but I need, to, I need to move on. We need to move on. I look again at the words of the Apostle Paul, forgetting what is behind and reaching for what is ahead, I press toward the mark. What is Paul saying? There are things I wish hadn't happened, and I can't live there. I got to live in the windshield, not the rearview mirror. I got to live looking ahead, looking forward. So um, I thought that was important, just forgiveness, again, is one that forgiveness is an area that God is constantly working on us. It's one of the areas that we know we're growing or we're not, we're stuck, whatever, we're progressing. You can look at where you were in a relationship five years ago and where you are now, and it gives you an idea of how's my growth going. So let me hit a few of these. Uh, one of them, one of them uh, asked, basically, we, we learned that God knows everything about us and knows our outcomes and decisions that we make. How does that fit in with free will? So God knows everything. He knows everything that's going to happen, but we're also told that we have the freedom to make choices. Well, how in the world can we have the freedom to make choices if God already knows what we're going to do? Isn't that kind of, you know, he's got a, a great puppet show going and we think we're making decisions, but in reality he's doing all this. A few years back, somebody tried explaining this away with a concept called open theism. It says, open theism is the thesis that because God loves us and desires that we freely choose to reciprocate his love, he has made his knowledge of and plans for the future conditional upon our actions. Though God is omniscient, though God knows everything, God does not know what we will freely do in the future. If I had a match right now and if my phone would ignite, uh, it would burn because this is heresy, all right? The idea somehow that God is waiting to find out what you're going to do is nuts. It just doesn't work that way. God knows all things actual, possible, past, future, boom, done, over, next. Well, how does that impact free will? I don't know. Why are you asking me? No. I, this again, this is one of these, I, I know some of you, you, you love to get answers to everything. I get that. I get that about you. I don't need the answer to this. I know God said it's what it is. I know he said this is the way it works, and I trust that God, I'm, I'm thrilled that God is bigger than me, okay? I'm thrilled. I love mystery. 
I love that God didn't explain everything so that my mind could understand it. Because if he did, it would be a pretty flat, basic, easy universe. You know what I mean? I love that there's complexity. And I love that there are things about God that we can sit and wonder, how does that work? But ultimately say, I still trust you. The Bible teaches God knows everything. The Bible teaches we have absolute free will. And both those things are somehow compatible. They're not contradictory. Contradictory would be you have free will, you do not have free will. It's not a contradiction. They are compatible. They somehow work together in the mind of God. And this is where a walk of faith comes in, that I'm willing to say, God, you're bigger, you know more. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you completely. And someone asked, the Bible was written over a span of thousands of years with multiple authors and stops with the book of Revelation. Why does the written Bible or scripture end with Revelation? Hasn't anything biblically meaningful happened over the past 2,000 years to warrant inclusion in scripture? In other words, you know, why, why did we end there? Got to be something. Certainly there's something that brilliant that's been written in the past 100 years that is worthy of, of calling another book. I believe that the, the answer to this is basically found in the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Uh, this, writer, this writer begins by saying, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And he goes on to talk about the Son of God. Basically, all of biblical revelation was pointing to and culminating, whoops, something fell, pointing to and culminating in Jesus. What, 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 what God is basically saying is everything you need to know can be found now in Jesus. You don't need, you don't need more revelation Everything you need to know about God, everything that God wants us to know can be known and revealed in Jesus. It was, it was like a, you know, a big arrow, eat at Joe's, all pointing, all pointing. It was all pointing at Jesus. And Jesus is the exclamation point at the end of a very long sentence to say, this is what it's all about. So get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus better. Get to know more about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. We find that we actually get to know who God is, the book of John tells us. We get to know who God is because we know who Jesus is. So uh, we can long for maybe more written revelation, but you have all the revelation you could ever want, want or need in the form of Jesus. I'm really speeding through these because I am determined to finish them, okay? In the creation story, God spends seven days perfecting what, uh, seven days creating perfection, but somehow Satan, in the form of an evil serpent, is allowed to penetrate perfection, and sin enters the world, and all is downhill from there. Speculating, of course, here, but why would God allow evil to enter his perfect creation? I mean, I, I think a lot of us have wondered this through the years. <laughs> if he just wouldn't have allowed evil. Why in the world did he create that fruit tree in the first place? If he just wouldn't have put the fruit tree in in the middle of the garden, none of this would have happened. Everything would be good. And the only answer I can keep coming back to is the ultimate goal of creating human beings was love. It was an opportunity for God to express his love wholly and completely and unconditionally. 
He gets to pour. We just sang about it, right? Reckless love of God. He gets to pour out that love. Can you have true love if you do not have the right to say, I don't want to love you? What kind of love is a compulsory love? What kind of a love is that says, no, you have to love me. You don't have a choice. I really believe that free will and all this comes together for God to basically say, you have the right to love me or you have the right to reject me. And so he allows evil to enter into his perfect creation to basically say, it's up to you. I'm not forcing myself on you. Do you want me? Do you want a relationship with me? Or do you not want a relationship with me? It's all about giving us the freedom to choose to love him, to choose uh, to accept him, and to choose to be with him. Someone wrote, and this is again one of those questions that just kind of leaves us wondering sometimes. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I just read a story about a girl who escaped North Korea, and it's very clear from her story that she had absolutely no access to biblical resources or knowledge of Jesus at all. How would she and other people like her come into a relationship with Jesus without access to information that Jesus even exists? And further, upon death, how does that impact their eternal heavenly destination possibilities? So this is a question that's been asked for a long, long time. I mean, if, if a gospel presence is not there, how can people be held responsible for a decision that they didn't even know they were supposed to make or, or you know, that was available? And... Um, I think the answer to that comes in uh, in a couple of forms. Uh, One of them, it comes in the form of the verse that you see every time you walk into this church. If you seek me, you will find me. If you look for me with your whole heart, you will find me. I truly believe, and we, we have evidence of this, of, you know, missionaries going to tribes in absolutely remote places only to find out that that tribe was already hungering for something that they ultimately came to know as God. They all, through the witness of that person, they ultimately came to know we were looking for God. There was a hunger there that God chose to say. He knows, he knows this person is out here asking. He knows this person is out here wondering. And he says, if you're seeking me, I will be found by you. And so there are times that God quite supernaturally provides that opportunity for a person to hear. So that does happen. I think the other thing that a question like this, what I, what I like to do with this question is ultimately put it in our own laps and say, well, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about making sure that the rest of the world knows about a Savior? I mean, it's one thing to kind of blame God. Well, you, you could have done something about that. He did do something about that. He created human beings with mouths and hearts to share their faith with other people. And so if we're withholding that, there's no blaming God for this. We, we need to look at ourselves and our own responsibility and ask ourselves, what are we doing to make sure the far reaches of the world come to know Jesus? Another person writes, the Jewish, writes, the Jewish people spent a lot of time in slavery in Egypt, and yet there isn't any mention of the great pyramids or great monuments of Egypt in the Bible. Is it possible the Jewish people themselves while in bondage, were responsible for constructing the great pyramids of Egypt. Um, <clears throat> based on, based on you know, just historical dating and whatever, uh, no. The, the, the pyramids were somewhere around 2500 B.C. 
Uh, the Israelites were in Egypt somewhere around uh, the 13th century BC. So the pyramids were there. All, all those, all those uh, structures existed. Uh, they were actually responsible. If you go back to the uh, book of Exodus and you go to the very first chapter. Oh, keep going. Almost there. So much more convenient with a slide. Oh, that's not where I wanted to be. Hold on. There it is. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So, so the Israelites were actually responsible for the building of, of two cities that were, that were just basically... Um, Giant Amazon warehouses, storage centers, okay? They were, they were responsible for these two cities located on the Nile and um, actually much closer up, up, toward, up toward their homeland of Israel. So kind of interesting as you look at the time that the Israelites spent in the land of Egypt, we don't, we don't know exactly when the, uh, the period of slavery began. We know that they were there about 400 years, which is incredible when you think our country is only going on 250. So, I mean, we, it's great 400 years in a foreign land. The Bible says at some point there rose up a king who did not know, who did not know Joseph, who did not know the impact. Was that the king right after Joseph died? Was that 200 years in? We don't know, but we know that there was a period of, of great slavery and a piece of their slavery was building uh, these two great cities of Egypt, but they weren't responsible for the, for the pyramids. Someone asked, the Old Testament and New Testament, how did God go from basically eye for an eye to New Testament where forgiveness is the only answer? And it's interesting because one of the questions, there's another one that goes along with this. One of the questions that often comes up when we're talking about answering questions from the Bible is, why is God in such a foul mood in the Old Testament? He kind of lightens up in the new. What's the deal? I mean, in the Old Testament, he's all thunderbolts and he's angry all the time and people are dying left and right. And the New Testament, it's, it's like he's a grandpa now. He's holding, holding the earth on his knee and bouncing and, oh, I just love people. What happened? You know, God has some split personality. What's the story here? And, um, well, let me, let me answer this question. It, it says, how do we go from basically eye for an eye in the Old Testament God did not teach eye for an eye in the Old Testament. God did not teach you have the right to go get revenge if your eye is plucked out. Go get the guy's eyeball. He didn't teach that. Now, he, he did teach that there are consequences for actions. You murder, your life will be taken. You know, there was some basic law that was codified. If you went and stole a chicken, your life wasn't taken. You had to replace the chicken, okay? Things like that. So there's a codification of law that goes on. But nowhere will you find a verse that says, go around grabbing people's eyeballs if somebody took your eyeball. In fact, what Jesus says is, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And you know what he's saying, basically? The religious leaders have distorted what God has said to say, this is what's going on. But that's not what God said. That's That's not what God said at all. God isn't basically saying in the Old Testament, vengeance is up for grabs, but in the New Testament, you just need to forgive. We were always supposed to forgive. We were always supposed to forgive. So that part didn't change. What does seem to change is, again, 
bad mood God, good mood God. What is that all about? And I don't think it's bad mood God, good mood God. I really think it's we get to see the whole of who God is. And I think this is, this is part of a problem even, even in our own times. We get kind of a la carte with God. We, we pick the attribute we like. We pick, the, we pick the peace of God that we like. You know, we're not really into the whole justice thing or, or that's, that side of judgment side of God. We like the love side of God. We, that, we'll stick with that. We can't pick and choose God's personality virtues. And I like this or I don't like that. So I think in the Old Testament, we have the clear expression of God's, God's judgment, God's justice, And in the New Testament, we're seeing God through who Jesus is. And so he's not just all thunderbolts and lightning, but he is actually a God of great love, which, by the way, we knew from the Old Testament, too, because David says it again. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. They're both there. What it does is it gives us an idea of all of who God is and not just a particular part of God that we want to see. One person asked, what does the fear of the Lord look like? Let me take a peek here. My crickets are going to go off at, 10, at 11.25, okay? My clock isn't up here today, so at 11.25 you'll hear chirping and we'll know we're five minutes from done. What does the fear of the Lord look like? Is it something others should see in me? How do people see or sense the fear of the Lord? So the fear of the Lord is kind of a, it's a, it's a tough concept just because of the word fear is there. In fact, I've heard, I've had long conversations with people that are like, how can fear and God go hand in hand? If God is love, if God is mercy, if God is compassion, why in the world would I be afraid of God? Well, that's, that's your perspective on the word fear. Um, I, I, when I think of the fear of the Lord, I think of the fear that I have for the Shanahan police. Okay? Now, hear me out. I know a lot of them. I, the other day, so I'm driving, and and I got I got my hand I got my hand on the car like this, and I'm driving like this. I'm holding my head up while I'm driving. What does it look like I'm doing? Talking on my cell phone, and I'm not kidding. Shanahan cop speeds up to me, and then I have this moment of, what am I doing wrong? 35. I'm okay. Oh, it's my hand. I have a healthy respect for the person behind me who can give me a ticket. I have a healthy respect for the person who is in authority over the law. I fear them. But I don't fear them as in I'm afraid of them, I'm scared of them. I have a healthy respect for the law. And the same is true of God. I have a healthy respect for God, for who he is, for his nature, for his character. I have a respect for God. And I think sometimes we hear the word fear and we think that's about being afraid. No, there's another aspect of that word fear that is just a healthy respect for who that person is and what they represent. So what would that look like in my life? Well, it would look like I'm trying to live to obey God. And as I'm obeying God, other people are noticing, I don't know why you do that. Why do you live that way? Because I respect God. Because I respect what God said. Because I want to please God. Because I want that, I want that uh, in my life. Is my wife in here? Go get her. Go get her. I, I'm not having a heart attack. And nothing bad's happening. So warn her. She'll think the worst. She'll just think the worst. She'll think the worst. She asked a question. 
and I could answer it, and I didn't answer it while she was in this service, and so... I guess this is assuming that she's right outside the door. Uh, I see shadows. Okay, cool. So, why, do, why does the Bible say I will be blessed if I study the book of Revelation? I, I am. That's why I'm here. So, verse 3. Eh, wait, wait, no, no. Yeah, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So, it is the only book of the Bible that we're told you're blessed for reading this book. That's not to say you're not on all the others, but it's the only one that there's no vert. You will be blessed for reading this book. Why does he say that? Here are a couple of things I learned. One, it is one of seven blessings in the book of Revelation. So John has this thing going that he's almost, he's almost got a list of beatitudes in the book of Revelation that are all his own. For example, he says that uh, those who die in the Lord are blessed. He says the one who keeps the words of the prophecy are blessed. He says the one who's, who washed their robes are blessed. So you have these seven different blessings going on in the book of Revelation. Uh, the first one, of course, being read this. Now, what I found interesting, I didn't know this before. Um, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of the prophecy. And that is a singular person. It says, blessed is the one. And I know that, in other words, he's not saying, blessed is, um, blessed are you when you read it, but blessed is the one, literally one person who reads it. And then he says, um, and blessed are those who hear it. The hearing is plural. The hearers are plural. The reader is singular. The hearers are plural. And commentator after commentator believe that what John is actually saying is he intended for this to be taught in the churches. And so the person reading the scripture to the congregation is blessed, as well as the people who are sitting listening to the revelation. So I found that intriguing in itself, that singular versus plural piece. But then beyond that, he says they're blessed to hear it and take to heart what is written in it. The take to heart has to do with obedience. Not, not just hearing what is said there, but obeying what is said there. I think a lot of times when we, when we think about the book of Revelation, we think about dragons and we think about 666 and we think about all these, these wild-eyed prophecies that are coming, but there's a lot in there that just basically says, this is what you're supposed to do. And he says there's a great blessing that comes from what? From obeying what God says. So he's calling us to basic obedience uh, to God's command. Beyond that, though, I really do believe there's a blessing in that he says what is written in it because the time is near. So a person who reads prophecy, while they may not... I'll tell you what, if you understand the book of Revelation, you're doing better than anyone else in the world because nobody... Part of the idea of the book of Revelation, I think, is for all of us to go to heaven and go, oh, now I get it. I mean, God, God wanted to say, it was as clear as the nose on your face, and you missed it. You didn't totally. Remember, the Old Testament again and again and again says, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, pretty much right here. See, this, this is the Messiah, right here, right here, right here, right here. And you have all these scripture scholars who had no clue that that was the Messiah. 
And I think to some degree, the book of Revelation is the same way, that we all sit here making our guesses. You know, every politician you don't like, you think is the Antichrist, right? <laughs> ah, finally, you remember when poor Gorbachev came on the scene with that big old face birthmark? Ah, 666, I see it there. Yeah, there it is. I mean, I remember, you know, Saddam was the Antichrist. Brezhnev was the Antichrist. Everybody's been the Antichrist. And every time we go, well, it wasn't him, wasn't him, wasn't her, wasn't him. And I really think that part of it is, you've said for a long time, the whole message of the book of Revelation is, Jesus is coming, are you ready? You are blessed if you believe that. And you will live a blessed life if you believe Jesus is coming and you better be ready. And the idea of imminence, his coming is imminent. Imminent doesn't mean that it is imminent, uh, what am I trying to say? Imminent doesn't mean soon, imminent means at any moment. I think some people hear imminent and they think it's soon, and it's like it's been 2,000 years. How can that be imminent? That's not what it, imminent means. Could happen now. Didn't. Could happen now. Uh, didn't. But it could. Uh, didn't. And so we live as if it could happen at any moment. A person who lives that kind of life my little children, 1 John 2, 28, my little children abide in him so that when he shall appear, we will be confident and unashamed before him as is coming. That's a person who is blessed, confident. I'm doing the right thing, unashamed. I'm not getting caught doing the wrong thing. Jesus has come and I was living like he was coming. And there's blessing in that. Go back to what you're done. All right. I hope that worked. And if it didn't, we'll talk when we go home. <clears throat> I'm currently reading the book of Samuel in the Bible and was just wondering why God is so violent in the Old Testament. I also wonder why God today allows so much tragedy and suffering, and I'm sure that gets asked a lot. So we already talked about bad mood God, good mood God, but yeah, why does God continue to allow, why does God continue to allow suffering? And, and the reality is the ballgame's not over. This is, all, this is all part of what it means to be part of the human race, that, you know, death is still a reality, Pain and suffering are still a reality, and one day God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And until then, we still live in this economy. We still live in, we still live in this particular time zone. This was a this was a, um, a Southfield question, kind of interesting. So some of you may not know that we actually moved from an old facility. We used to meet over on Black Road, at the corner of Black Road and Bethel Drive. And, and our old name used to be Bethel. And we had some people, uh, this, this person asked, so um, did we name that street? Or did that street get named after we came? Did we change the name of the street? What, what's that all about? So when we moved out there, that was the far end of the earth of Joliet. I mean, back in the day, I am told Essington was a dirt path. I just drove down there the other day. It gets crazier and crazier. So... Black, uh, Black Road was there. That subdivision was just being built. I can't remember the name of the subdivision. Terry Lennon lives there. But anyway, we got to name that street Bethel Drive. And we also got to name the street that cuts off of Bethel Drive, which is uh, Kung's Way. So, Janet, what does Kung's Way mean? Yeah, Christ the King. It's the King's Way. So, we got to name Bethel Drive, which means House of God. 
Bet House, L, God, House of God. And we got to name Kung's Way, nice Swedish name, meaning the Christ's Way or the King's Way. So some of you have lived on, in apartments over there on Kung's Way, and now you know what your name meant. Been wondering about that. Uh, let me do this last one. Crickets are going to chirp. Why is a book like Judges in the Bible? <laughs> it's like a horror movie in the end. <laughs> I love that Judges is in the Bible. I love that God doesn't only put his positive press clippings in the Bible. I love that he puts the parts in the Bible where his people blow it all the time. I think it, I think it demonstrates that God's being authentic, right? Uh, I, I, while we may not get as violent as judges, we live some judges cycles in our lives, right? There's this beautiful, well, not so beautiful cycle in the book of Judges. People are obeying. They disobey God. They fall into captivity. A rescuer comes along, delivers them from captivity, and they're free once again. And you can just hear in this cycle, you can hear them. They mess up, and they're, they're being tormented, and they're like, God, if you ever rescue me from this, I'll never do this again. Rescuer comes, delivered. Ha, all is good. Oh, that sin looks good. And we're off to that one. This is the way we live, right? We keep, we keep getting rescued and thinking, no, I'll do it right this time. And then it happens again. I really believe God put that particular book in the Bible to show us the cycle we live in ourselves when we choose to live life apart from Christ. And by the way, it ends with saying, Israel had no king and everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. It ends, it ends dark and bleak. It's one of the sadder verses in the Bible. I mean, everybody's just doing whatever they please, whatever they want. They don't care about God. And of course, Joshua judges. Then comes the book of Ruth, four chapters in which we learn that Ruth is going to be a descend a relative of this boy named David, and David ultimately is going to have a great 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 grandchild named Jesus. So you have the bleakness at the end of Judges, followed by hope is on the horizon, and then David is born and then on down the line. So bottom line is it's a history book. And God doesn't just erase parts of his people's history. He doesn't hide parts of his people's history. So all right, Brian's going to come. Our servers are going to come to collect the offering right now. And um, I wonder, you know, this set is beautiful. I keep waiting for Moses to come out of this cave. But anyway, um, what are you looking forward to this week? Well, I'll give a different answer than first service. Because first service, I said the music. Like, I, I'm so pumped. The motions are crazy this year. Like, and I love coming off of a week of camp, like after everything's over and that following Sunday, everybody's still like out here in the gathering area, like doing motions and all that. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. But this skit, like I've just been walking through a few different times, the videos that they've got, everything, like it looks hilarious. I cannot wait uh, for this skit. It's going to be amazing. Good deal. Good deal. You remind me that normally the week after camp, we come to Sunday and we get to see one of the, one of the installments from the week. And 
uh, several of the people involved in acting are actually getting done with camp and headed out on vacation. So next week will not look like a typical week after camp week. We'll do some of the music and whatever. We'll have a little bit of uh, storytelling of that week as well as of the Green Lake week. And then we'll actually be introducing... uh, the sermon series, the teaching series for this coming summer. So yeah. looks a little bit different. Yeah. Um, with camp, uh, so today there is an all-staff meeting, so everybody who's involved with camp, we're meeting here from 12 to 2. Uh, it would be really helpful if some of you want to stick around after. Chairs do need to come down, but we need to set up 12, table, 12 round tables in here with eight chairs around each, so they don't all need to come down. We can grab some tables, roll them out. We'll give everybody you know, a couple minutes to, to move out. Uh, but if you would be willing to stick around and help us with that, that'd be great. Do you have a student? Um, you have a couple of student things. I'm yeah, sure. so we have so many students involved in this week that we're, just, we're taking the week off. So um, Revive is off tonight, and Refuge is off this Wednesday. We'll get back into the swing of things here uh, next week, but we are taking the week off. And then Omega, uh, do not forget to sign up for Omega. It's going to be amazing. Uh, went, talked with the other leaders this week. We've got a lot of really cool stuff planned. So make sure if you are entering your freshman year of high school this fall or you are leaving for college anywhere in between there, uh, get signed up for Omega. Go to southfieldchurch.com. News and events, down to Omega, register, get, up, get everything all set because we are looking forward to a great week. That deadline for registration is July 1st, which is close. So yeah, don't, don't miss. Don Yost is one of our actors this week. He always has some fun part to play. And uh, this year he, he's not Satan, right? He, not right. Satan. Yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> he actually puts his lines on the rock. So sitting here reading what he's going to say. It's hilarious. I'm not going to reveal it. I think this is the entirety of the lesson. Here it is. But nice, nice job memorizing those lines, Don. When you see Don acting and he kind of backs up and... Churchill, it's not about the armor. <laughs> you guys have been working hard, haven't you? <laughs> I, I, many, many moons ago, I did the acting. I was Bob the Tomato. And, um, oh my goodness. I was Bob the Tomato, and uh, I had lines, and I could never learn my lines. And we had the tent, and so I had my lines on the tent pole, and, you know, yeah, I was. Anyway. Going to the grocery store with Bob the Tomato was the greatest. That was because like you walk around and all these kids are like, "That's Bob!" I'm like, "Yeah, that's my dad." That happened for (laughs) that happened for years. In fact, I'm at Omega last year, and the youth pastor from Grace comes up to me and says, "You're Bob the Tomato." (laughs) Oh my word! Yes, I am. Anyway, so I've done a few things at camp through the years. What I've never done is what I'm doing this week. I get to be a team leader for first and second grade kids. I have never, ever, ever done this. And, well, and I am terrified. <laughs> I, am, I am scared spitless. I mean, this is just like, this is going to be so cool. So I, I be praying for us. Be praying for my kids. They need a lot of help. But be, be praying for us. This is going to be, um, well, it's going to be a mind-blowing week. They always are. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of a church that believes that children matter. I'm thrilled to be a part of a church that believes that children can come into a relationship with God. And that not only that they can, but it is, for many people, the prime time that they come into a relationship with God. And so I, I hope that you will be joining us in praying throughout this week for great, great softness in these kids' hearts 
that they will realize that there is a God in heaven who loves them. And by faith, they will accept Jesus as the forgiver of their sin and the leader of their life. And someday when they're 50 or 60, they'll, they'll point back and say, there was this, there was this nutty little church in Shannon. And, the, and that's, that's where I came to know Jesus. And I've loved him ever since. Pray with me. Now, God in heaven, as we gear up for another week of serving you, whether it's at camp or making widgets, whatever we do, I pray that we will do it wholeheartedly for you, not for others. I pray that we will recognize that when we, when we work for you and serve you, there is eternal value and eternal reward, things that last far beyond this world. I pray for these soft young hearts, that there would be tremendous openness, that your spirit would do a mighty work in them, that they would know that God is real, that Jesus loves them, and that they can know God. Thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. You enjoy your weekend if you can, stick around. Brian will direct you.